Everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We're everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend, not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by Haley Mitsui, Jer Swigert, and myself, John Huckins. And as always, we're going to jump into the conversation with a question of the week. Okay, friends, here is our question of the week. Do you remember what kind of high schooler you were? And I'm going to elaborate on this. Like, what table did you sit at in the cafeteria or or sort of what group were you? Were you affiliated with if you were affiliated with a stereotypical mm. high school group? I can start because I actually have a memory just right here at the top of my mind. Right before everything shut down for the pandemic, my sister and I went to San Francisco for a sister's trip. And one of my best friends from high school lives there. So we met up and we were talking about like, who were the popular kids? Because we all, my sister and my friend and I, we all went to this really small private school. Um, and so I was asking her, you know, oh, who are the popular kids in your grade? And da da da. And then she was asking Victoria and I, and I was like, yeah, I was like, we we were the popular kids, but there were there were kind of like two groups of like popular kids. There was like the popular girls that. Like we're, you know, we were like the popular kids that were on student council and we were in all the honors classes. And then like there's the popular girls that were like pretty and had all the boyfriends. Oh, my gosh, I wasn't popular. Like it just hit me <laughs> at 31 years old that I was not popular. And I, I truly thought that I was. Isn't that a great gift, though? I mean, you got to avoid all that. You could just live in self yeah. I don't know if denial is the right word, but you know. Yeah. So it turns out, yeah, that like being the smart ones with like on student council is like not the hallmark traits of popularity. But I was living in a deep, deep denial, apparently. Hey, it's po- it's popular in my book. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Tell me. Tell me about your, your high school experience there, Jer. Well, I was very shy, very quiet. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite the truth. Uh, I think in high school, I grew up in a really small town in Wisconsin. And so uh, the the beauty of that is that it gave you the opportunity to be a part of a whole bunch of different things. And so I was, um, I was an athlete. I was in music. I was in theater. And I took school really seriously. So you could kind of do all those things. Um, you didn't have to choose. You could do them all. And so um, that, that, that meant that I was in all sorts of different circles all the time. And uh, and have, I think I've always been pretty gregarious. And so, you know, I, I feel like I had different kinds of people and different kinds of friend groups and, and everything that I got to navigate. And so, um, but in, <clears throat> I've always been someone that, uh, that can navigate lots of different social circles, but I, I have a very small capacity, honestly, for deep friendship. And so I navigated most of my high school uh, career with um, with one core friend and um, and he and I didn't really belong to a group but we would navigate the groups together and mm. we felt really at home and at place and uh, in all those spaces and so I was probably uh, I mean I was the the high 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 achiever kid um, and that's kind of always been my disposition 
but when it came to social circles, kind of life of the party fun. Like when I, when I showed up, I wanted it to be fun and I wanted it to be memorable. And so that's probably how I operated for those four years. That was good, man. That was, that was a, that was a very introspective reflection. Hey, thanks nowhere. guys. You know, wow. I, I try, I try to take, I try to take Haley's can of questions seriously. Golly darn. <laughs> John. Well, you got to keep in mind, Hales, by the time I got to high school, I was fresh out of eight years of homeschool. Ooh, boy. My very first year of public school was ninth grade. So I showed oh up with gosh, a bowl cut. Oh my gosh, they threw you right into a... public school. Oh, straight in there. Wow. Let's just say if it wasn't for my sister, who was a senior, and me and her inviting me into her friends, I may never have spoken with a human being throughout high school. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go way off the deep end, John? So yeah, I mean, I, it's a slippery slope, as you know. When you go into public school, they haven't they they didn't keep Christ in school or prayer in school. Anyway, um, yeah. So that first year, just navigating, and then and then got into uh, into surfing, and ended up my last three years being in the surf skate crowd, and uh, we were we were a tough crowd. I'll be honest. Yeah. Sometimes I uh, I felt some. I felt excited and honored to be part of it. And other times I felt very uncomfortable with some of the behaviors. I won't get into them here, but uh, that was my circle. Did you get, did you get the lecture from your parents? Bad company corrupts good character or Mm. wrong place, wrong time, things like that. Or, or did you, were you spared all that? I, you know, if, if they did, it wasn't that direct. Okay. Uh, So, (laughs) so it was passive aggressive. They would, you know, the best way to get it. I, you know, in the end. Uh, well this week we have, I mean, I feel really lucky that we've gotten to interview so many amazing friends of the movement. Um, Today is no exception. Julie Ethan is uh, a former staff member of Global Immersion and the author of an upcoming book entitled How Can Half the Country Be So Stupid? A Memoir and Guide to Friendship Between Political Opposites. It's a beautiful memoir of how her and her husband who have historically been very conservative and their relationship with a mixed race, politically liberal um, couple and the what they've learned from each other in the process of that three decade long friendship. So here we're gonna hop into our conversation with Julie. Hi, Julie, welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. It's really great to have you. Hi, Haley, I'm delighted to be here. So for most people probably don't know that Julie and I, we used to be co-workers at Global Immersion. So this is an extra special episode getting to talk about everyday peacemaking from someone who has been in the trenches with us both as a job and then obviously outside just in your normal life as a as an everyday peacemaker. So this is a very special time for me. Um, but today we're talking about something very specific, navigating the election, thus maybe navigating the election election. Would you say, how would you describe kind of the why of the book that you, that you're releasing? Well, in terms of the why the political divide in the country has been on my heart for more than a decade. And I think that something that drew me to conflict resolution was, was literally the the political divide and, you know, being concerned that we're not, uh, we're, we're, we're looking at taglines and, you know, catchphrases and we're not listening to each other and we're not getting curious. So 
probably about uh, three years ago, I started on the idea of writing a book that was kind of a guide to, you know, how to have civil conversation. But the more it uh, iterations it took, the more I realized that what people really needed to hear was this story of my own friendship with a, uh, a political opposite and and how we interacted, because that was really the essence of, of sort of guiding people in how to in how to be civil. And then because it's also a memoir, you know, you kind of get to journey with me on my own sort of political evolution. And the interesting thing is, is that my journey or politically evolving really didn't stem a lot from the friendship with a political opposite as much as it did you know, my own um, learning and, you know, reading and things like that and, you know, starting to change my mind about things. So um, you kind of get to you get to be in on that in the book as well. <laughs> mm. I, I'm personally very excited to get to read through this because I know, I mean, yes, so many people are navigating how do we be peacemakers in the midst of such political divide. Um, but I'm curious if there is like, do you have a story or an anecdote from the from your memoir that that might help us get a little glimpse into how you personally have approached this or what spurred you into um, really starting to dig into your own political affiliations and commitments and um, allegiances. Yeah, you know, definitely. There's kind of a a central story that kicks that kicks off this whole conversation um, between me and my friend Benjamin that lasts not you know that started around, probably around 2004 and continues to this day. And what it was, as you you know already inform your audience, my husband and I were political conservatives, and we are friends were liberal and they were very, very involved in Democratic Party politics. So in 2004, um, I was starting to um, have more time to look into politics. And Benjamin and Beth invited me to come to the campaign volunteer sort of election night gala, you know, um, they said I could just come and tag along. And this was the election in 2004 between John Kerry and um, George Bush. And I had voted for Bush. Um, and I said, but sure, why not? You know, I'm this open-minded person, you know, I'll, I'll go along. So we got there and there were media trucks lining the Minneapolis Convention Center. There were uh, you know, satellite dishes. And then when we stepped inside, I mean, you know, people that I was used to seeing on, t on my TV screen anchoring the news were standing there, you know, reporting live. So we kind of mingled and had hors d'oeuvres and I chatted with, you know, some of their friends. And, and then at one point, the election results were finalized and John Kerry came on and conceded to, to Bush on the television monitors. And we all watched it. And I was in a hallway walking by this cluster of women. They were kind of in a circle with their arms folded talking. And one of them just said really loudly, she said, how can half the country be so stupid? <laughs> and, you know, I kind of looked back at her and I thought, 
well, I'm guessing, you know, I'm thinking this in my head. I'm guessing the half you're talking about doesn't think they're the stupid ones. The funny thing is, is looking back on it, I'm like, well, what did I think? That they should all just stand around and say, ah, shucks, we lost. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. So, but it really stuck with me. And later in the week, when I had a chance to talk to Benjamin, I, I told him about this comment that the lady said, how can half the country be so stupid? What's really interesting about it is that he didn't react to the comment. He didn't defend He was just like this living, breathing, walking practitioner of exactly how you should deal with these conversations and these conflicts. So instead of even reacting to what they said, he says, do you think there's anything that you and I would agree on in politics or politically? Like, you know, maybe we should go through a list of things and see if there's anything that we actually agree on. I said, yeah, that's a good idea. And he says, I think it would make for a challenging and interesting conversation. <laughs> and and that really is kind of what kicked it off, us kind of comparing notes on different issues. One of the issues that, you know, we did end up finding that we had some agreement on was the lack of solid immigration policy coming from the federal level and how it was creating a lot of havoc for me and my husband in our small business and even for him as not only a employee at the Ford plant but you know also in all the political committees he was on and so that was interesting that was the first time we ever realized that we agreed on something and it was that the immigration system was broken and i am so sad to to say that to this day we have not um we haven't figured that out were you concerned at all that you might lose your friendship with Benjamin when you just agreed to go through this list of things and see what you agreed and disagreed on? I think that's such a good question because, you know, at the time, I think at the time things were starting to ramp up, um, you know, but politics wasn't as triggering as it is today. Um we were just like having an interesting conversation and we were coming from two completely different worldviews at the time. Um, so no, I just, and I, I would also back that up by saying that we had already been friends um, as couples for probably 14 years um, before this even came up. It was just sort of like another layer of, of sharing our, you know, our lives with each other. You know, in the book, there's more stories about little encounters and things like that, Um, especially as we go through the years and the rhetoric just starts to ramp up in 2008 with um, the John McCain, Sarah, Sarah Palin against Obama, you know, so, um, yeah, but no, that's a great question. It, 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 it never got, and I credit Benjamin with so much of, of just his natural ability to to be curious instead of defensive. Um, Mm. I think that's what carried it. What were some difficulties of venturing into that reality? Like, you know, kind of putting all your political chips on the table. Like what were some challenges about that? And also how did you see yourself change through that process? The fact that I could really say anything, and I look back on it now really kind of in shock that there was... 
I never felt like I had to defend my position, whether it was on women's rights or uh, how I felt about certain social phenomena or whatever. It was just accepted that we weren't going to have the same view. But what was nice about it is I, I did go back to school. I went to a Christian university in 2010 to get my bachelor's degree. And that's when I actually started to learn more about things like Martin Luther King Jr. and his letter from a Birmingham jail. And the race struggle in, in our country was really shielded from me throughout my early elementary education in the 70s and stuff because they just weren't teaching, you know, they weren't teaching it. And so here you are like 40 years old and you're just learning, you know, about all of these things, the Jim Crow laws and all the things that we did to our citizenry. And uh, so I could take those learnings and go to Benjamin with them or Beth and talk about them without feeling there was never a, well, finally, you know, you're getting it or that kind of a reaction. It was just so comfortable. So really, seriously, looking back, it's almost like kind of miraculous <laughs> that I had that and it really helped and then there was it wasn't one-sided you know they um they were willing to let their daughter go to Christian summer camp with our daughter one year and Benjamin visited our church and they were at all my kids birthday parties I mean it was like they were they really became family we were really lucky and I was lucky to be able to bounce off those you know, new learnings with them. The relationship you had with Benjamin, how did it inform how you approached other relationships in your life or other relationships with people that you thought you might not have a lot in common with? I don't know that it informed anything. I was always pretty open as an Enneagram 9 peacemaker. <laughs> Something that was really neat before we moved from Minnesota to San Diego, uh, Benjamin and I had the opportunity to get involved in some community peace building around the topic. Um, we joined Better Angels, which is now called Braver Angels, and they gave workshops to citizens to learn how to have civil discussions with your politically opposite friends. And it was neat to get to do that. Uh, together and work on that before I moved away. If you could give one piece of advice to people who probably know that they have friends or family members who um, they don't see eye to eye with politically, do you have a piece of advice that you would give those that are that are starting to warm up to the idea of venturing into hard conversations with political opposites? Well, one thing I learned from a retired Berkeley professor who um, studied linguistics and cognitive science is that we all have those red and those and blue receptors in our brain. We have conservative and liberal brain circuits. And so one piece of advice is that if someone's saying something to you that's very politically charged, just repeat back what they said. So what you're saying is such and such, and then let them expound on it because it helps you take a step back from reacting and getting defensive and then realize that there's a good chance or something that you guys could agree on because both of your brains have both receptors. It's just that the messaging tends to go one way or the other, depending on what, what we're more of. But look for those underlying values. Like, So what you're really saying is that you, you think in this situation, there needs to be some fairness applied. Oh, fairness, that's a value we share, you know. So yeah, I wouldn't be afraid to just repeat back what they said and, and see if you can look for some shared values. 
so good. Looking for shared values is is something we forget, is something we absolutely forget to do a lot. So thanks for that reminder. Julia, it's been a pleasure to share this time together and learn from you. Um, I hope that everyone uh, runs out and buys your memoir um, and can also dive into some of these hard conversations that a lot of us are navigating right now. So thanks for leading the charge in that. Thank you, Haley, it was my pleasure. The timely conversation, I think, with Julie to to be exploring the you know the realities of the political divides. I mean, that's where we are right now as as a country, and and to get some practical insight in terms of how to actually navigate these conversations. There are a couple things that really pop for me in the conversation that um, that I want to put on the table. Um, one is the idea of civility, and um, like I. I I appreciate that she used the word political opposite, and I, I would even wonder more about um, the boxes or the categories that we create for people who live on the other side of something from us. It, it, she didn't use adversary, which I, I liked. Um, opposite is I'm here and you're you're on the other side of that. And so I think there's an acknowledgement there that was really important in the way that she she used that language. Um, but But the only way that opposites are going to move toward one another is through this practice of civility. And I feel like civility is, uh, is a lost art in the moment. Uh, and this idea that we can hold one another's perspectives and, and respect, be respectful of each other's perspective, um, give each other the benefit of the doubt, think generously of one another. I think those are all of the things that lie behind civility. Um, but it, the, the book that came to mind as she was, as she was talking is a book by Rich, Richard Mao, where he focuses on convicted civility and this idea that, uh, that I can hold, I can hold my perspective. There's a conviction that I hold and, um, and be respectful of your conviction at the same time. That's what convicted civility sounds like. And that, that's, I think that kind of creates, the environment for us to um, to do what she encouraged us to do is that that like fight for what we share in common, um, and uh, and so I was I was really appreciative of that. And then the second thing that rose to the surface for me really lies at the center of the work that we do as global immersion, and uh, and that is immersion. We we believe that transformation requires intentional displacement. And what I really appreciated in her conversation or in her story about Benjamin is how Benjamin actually invited Julie to do the immersing. And um, he invited her into a, a moment of displacement where Julie found herself in uncommon territory and in maybe even a foreign space. But Benjamin didn't just invite her into that let her navigate that, and then we go have drinks and move on. But he actually created a little bit of space for some debrief, <laughs> you know, like what was that like? And which then generated a process that sounds like it is, um, it shaped her life and now is actually put together um, or generated this artifact. So I love this idea of offering invitations into immersion of other folk, but also receiving invitations by them into immersions where I think we find ourselves transformed. Yeah. You know, Julie also did say that her and Benjamin had 14 years of friendship that led up to this. So does that mean we have to build 14 years worth of rapport with someone before we can enter into hard conversations? I mean, I hope the answer is not yes, but what are some of those foundations that you build in a 14 year friendship that you need to bring into conversations with people that are opposite of you? It made me, you know, on that point, like the relational equity that 
allows for those hard conversations to happen seems so critical and so foreign in this moment of so much like it's almost like each person right now is being graded on their ideological purity like how ideologically pure are you and if you're not ultimately pure then you are out like pick your side you're you're, you're no longer on the team and that's not an economy of friendship or relationship uh, you know it's just like it forces you into a posture of defensiveness it you're you're on the other side of pointed fingers all the time rather than curious questions. I love at the end when she talked about asking clarifying questions. And in that, it might lead to some common ground or it might not. And you can agree to disagree. But uh, it does feel like it's um, on one hand, I could understand the critique being like, well, you have to have you, you've got to be strong to make policy changes that actually change the systems. And I think that is a conversation to be had. And there's a lot to it on a relational level. What she's inviting us into, I think, is a movement beyond our ideological purity and toward a relationship where everyone can grow and be transformed and seek. You know, this is, again, one of our immersed practices, seeking to understand rather than to be understood. Well, that's really hard. You know, St. Francis talked about that, and we're still stumbling our way through it today. And that, that's where, like, the, the titling of her book and using, you know, like, this idea that we live in a space where we may th- we might think that the person on the opposite side or the other half of whatever is stupid. I, I think that's I think that's really fascinating how quickly uh, how quickly we can dupe ourselves into believing that the, the a person with an opposite viewpoint doesn't just have an opposite viewpoint. They are less than. They are subordinate. Um, like stupid uh, is not a, a is not a judgment call around their intellect. It's a character assassination and so for entering in in this moment in time right now as we're as we're in the the election season i think we have to interrogate the way that we understand our opposite uh do we see them as stupid do we see them as um do we see them as as self-serving do we see them as hyper protective what what do we what's the narrative what's the false narrative that we have in our minds about the person who's on the other side whether that person is in our family in our workspace in our faith community sits next to us in school, whatever it is, I think we need to be asking ourselves right now, what is this, what's the story I believe about this person? And why is it that I've worked so hard to memorize my false narrative rather than actually do the work to understand what's true for them? Uh, and, and I think if we, if we can interrogate, that might be the thing that begins to move us toward that person, not out of critique, but out of generosity and an honest desire to do the hard work that you speak of, John, like seeking to understand rather than to be understood. As I'm thinking about, you know, people that that maybe I perceive as my opposites or political opposites, to me it feels important to distinguish that some people can be in favor of legislation and like policies that like harm you. And and so that's one thing. It's like there there does maybe need to be some boundaries if you are someone who is or can be harmed. And then the other is you when you're when your political other is a reflection of the shame that you carry about yourself. Say more on that. I see a lot of people completely writing off people who are just five years basically behind them. And I don't, I shouldn't even say behind because that makes it seem like there is a right path. But we often 
put people on an other who remind us of the parts of us that we're embarrassed we used to be. Like a lot of people who grew up really conservative evangelical and believed certain things and maybe had stances that they're now embarrassed they had. Instead of owning and integrating that part of their identity and allowing that to build empathy, they use it almost as a weapon against the people that still think that way. So I see it as sort of like one, maybe also just taking inventory, like how is this, is this person really my opposite or is this person like a reflection of me? And that might inform how you approach that conversation too. That's Hales, that, that piece on shame, I think is huge, especially for those of us in this conversation, listening in who I, I think a lot of us, like you said, came from conservative Christian spaces where we experience shame. And in that economy, the way you change other people's mind is to critique them. It's to point at them. So it's almost like it's this, as if it's the only thing we know. And so now many who might be on a, have gone through the journey and are looking back, they're just, like you said, mirroring back that shame onto the community that they inherited from. But it's still the same thing even if you're on a different political or worldview space. And so what is the journey beyond that dysfunctional economy of shame that others out of hurt? That feels like this, you know, at the end, Julie talked about like these clarifying questions help us get to the source too of our pain. And I wonder if that's some of it. Thanks so much to Julie for sharing her incredible journey with her friend, Benjamin for highlighting how we can not only be civil, but actually loving friends with people who are on the other side of the aisle. And my biggest takeaway here is just learning to be generous with people that we don't think that we have anything in common with. Friends, God's restoration is happening. Now go participate in it and know that you are not for more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.